0: If you want to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2, which is where I'll be this morning, Philippians chapter 2. Father, it's always lovely to read your word. Thank you for the psalms that speak so warmly and strongly of who you are. Thank you for the letters, Lord help us understand what it is to be a man or a woman of God living in your world in a way that pleases you. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the process by which it lays on our laps now, those who have safeguarded it through the years. Thank you that we can read it in our own language and your Holy Spirit can lead us into truth The truth that sets us free, liberates us, gives us light, brings life. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 19, Philippians 2, verse 19. Paul continues and writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Paul goes on to say in what is now our third chapter, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he sounds like those preachers who say, lastly, and then they carry on forever, don't they? Because he's got another two chapters yet. There's only a four-chapter letter. Halfway through, he says, finally. So it could be, it could conceivably be that he's winding down and suddenly thinks of something he ought to include, so he winds up again. If that were the case, then the end of chapter 2 is the end of his letter. But most people think Paul is just wanting to encourage them and strengthen them and uh, spur them on. And the end of chapter 2 isn't the end of the letter. Which makes it all the more interesting because he includes a sort of biography or a comment about... Two close friends. Normally, in his other letters, he reserves that to the end of the letter. So if you go to the book of Romans, for example, 16 chapters, the final chapter, is all about his friends, getting greetings from them, sending greetings to the people he's writing to from these lovely folk, and gives a little comment about each of them. The end of 1 Corinthians 16 includes much the same. It's the end of the letter. Colossians is much the same. But in Philippians, he includes it in the middle of the letter. So it's always asking the question, why? Why does he move it from being at the end of the letter, which it could easily have been, to the middle of the letter? Well, earlier in this letter, he's been speaking to them about living a life worthy of the calling they've received. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You remember, of course, that they haven't got a gospel yet. The gospels have not yet been written. So they can't turn to their gospels and read what it is to be a minister of the gospel. They have not got those documents yet. They've only got letters from Paul so far. And the chances are the Philippians will only have this letter. They won't have any others. Put yourself in that situation. How would you know how to live a Christian life if you didn't have your Bible You'd find it quite difficult, wouldn't you? He answered the question. Why does it say, um, why does one version say he well, I forget what it says he that hag Egypt anyway? There's a question someone and someone rightly so picked up the scripture and said, This is what actually the more authentic version says. The message is a paraphrase, trying to give us over the point of the passage, but you went to a phrase because then we feel we understand it a little more. A little more digging would have done the trick, wouldn't it? To understand what it's all about. How would we have done that without the word of God, which they don't have? So their question would be, well, what does it mean to live a life worthy or how to live, how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? So he's spoken about unity in the spirit. He's spoken about courage in their suffering. He's talked about. Having no selfish ambition or vain conceit. He spoke about humility, considering others better than themselves. He spoke about looking out for the interest of others. All that at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. And then he goes into this lovely hymn about Jesus. Because Jesus, of course, is the example of what it is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we have those lovely verses in chapter 2. He's the best and greatest example. But Paul chooses to include his friends here at this point, I believe, because they also illustrate what it is to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he just highlights them here and says quite a bit about them. The story is, of course, that Philippi, we know that before, had a church planted in Acts chapter 16. The chances are Paul hasn't been back there since this time. Possible, but thought not likely. He's now in prison in Rome, and the Philippian church have a soft spot in their heart for Paul because he planted the church. And people who have a big part to play in your spiritual life, or places that have a big part to play in your spiritual life, will always be very important to you. Lynn and I will be 40 years old as Christians, I hasten to add, grey hair notwithstanding, uh, this year. So we're going to make a little trek back to Western Supermare where it all happened for us and to the church, uh, roughly speaking, the same weekend as it all turned for us because Western Supermare and that particular church will always be a special place for us. The man who was the one who brought us to the faith and his wife were key people in our early discipleship, both now with the Lord. We were able to get to both there, no, just one funeral. We were unable to get to the other funeral. Great disappointment. But they will always have been special people for us. Paul is a special person for the Philippians. So when they hear he is in prison, they immediately do something about that. Now you can't always do what you want to do but even in those cases, there's something you can do. They all wanted to go and help him, but they couldn't do that. They live 800 miles away. They've got work to do, families to raise, things to do. So they appoint a guy called Epaphroditus. Here's a name and a half, isn't it? It means son of Aphrodite, who is the pagan goddess of love. So this man does not have a Christian background, because no Christian parent would name their child after the pagan goddess of love. But he's a man who's changed. Even if he's got the wrong name, he's got the right character. Anyway, they choose to have Epaphroditus be their spokesperson and they gather together a gift and they give it to Epaphroditus and he travels 800 miles. must have taken him six or seven weeks to do that over very treacherous territory to go and deliver the gift to them. So my friends... When there's something that really strikes your heart, you can't always do what you want to do, but even in those cases, there's often something you can do. Do what you can, even if you can't do what you wanted to do. Epaphroditus comes on their behalf. Unfortunately, the journey is a very long one. And travelling in those days would have been either by foot or possibly on a donkey, either way very slow, And very dangerous. The chances are Epaphroditus didn't go on his own. He went with other people because it would have been, frankly, too dangerous to carry a large quantity of money in these dangerous brigand-riddled lanes. But during that long journey, he um, catches a disease. In some way or other, he becomes profoundly ill. So by the time he arrives in Rome, probably, he's profoundly ill. In fact, he's so ill, Paul says he nearly died. And the story is that, you know, Paul notwithstanding his powerful, effective prayers, they didn't work for Epaphroditus straight away, and the word gets back to Philippi that Epaphroditus, their man, is sick almost to death. They are distraught. They are distraught about that. Word gets back, all the way from Philippi, all the way back to Rome, that they have heard about Epaphroditus, and they are distraught, and the word gets back to Paul, and he is distraught, and Epaphroditus is distraught, that they are distraught about him. You get the picture here? It's taken a long time, it's seven weeks each way, so that's sort of, you know, 21 weeks at least, it's been going on this way, but a quite a long period of time. This poor guy is struggling. He's gone to be their minister. So the thing is, Paul wants to send him back. It's not that he doesn't want him. He certainly does want him. He's now healed, and he's completely healed. But he wants to send him back so they can see that their guy is safe and sound. So the purpose of the letter is basically to thank them for their gift and to send Epaphroditus back. That was a lot, wasn't it? Just to give that. But that's the background of it, okay? So he's going to send... Timothy, now Timothy you know, joined Paul in Acts chapter 16 just before they went to Philippi. So Philippi was the first place Timothy had an experience of church planting. He saw Paul do it. He was a very green, if you like, apprentice in those days. And he saw Paul plant the church with Lydia and the other ladies at the river and then it obviously got a bit further on. And then he and Paul left and went on and the church has grown since then. So for Timothy... It is a very special place. And Timothy really does care for the same church. Wouldn't it be the case? Do you remember the first person you ever knew who became a Christian through something you said? Those opportunities you had to minister into someone's life for the first time ever and it sort of happened? Those sort of things stay with you, don't they? If you can remember that far back. I can't remember what I have for breakfast today, so I mean, you, know, you know. But sometimes you can remember those things, can't you? Timothy has a very close connection. So Paul is going to send Epaphroditus back with Timothy. Because Timothy has been with Paul all those years. Something like 10 years on now. We're at the end of the book of Acts and a bit beyond, the chances are. And Timothy has stayed with him. So Paul says something about Timothy and says something about Epaphroditus. Two very different people, two men. They could easily be, well, they couldn't have been women. It wouldn't have been appropriate with Paul. But in our culture, this could easily have been women. So although it's men we're talking about today, it applies to women as well. And he speaks very warmly about both of them. Timothy models the kind of life that sticks with others through thick and thin. Isn't that right? He's seen Paul through, if you want to read, not now, obviously, we haven't got time to read now, but Acts chapter 16, right through to the end, Paul, Paul and Timothy have been closely involved. Not necessarily all the time, but Timothy's been with Paul through the ups and downs of ministry, and it's been up and down, it's been up and down. He's been through the second missionary journey, probably the third missionary journey, probably was it involved or went with Paul to the council, um, and, and on through his um, imprisonment and so forth, and probably on the shipwreck as well going through. Timothy joined him through thick and thin. And Paul speaks about him as one who has been proved. He has proved himself. It's the word you would use if you were refining gold or silver, which is a careful process that takes time. And here's the thought. Timothy demonstrates that you don't come to spiritual maturity overnight, do you? It takes time, a long time. In fact, it'll take the rest of your life to become as holy as God wants. By the way, God wants you holy, not happy. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. It's not the one we go for. Holiness is what God is going for. Happiness derives from that because when we're holy, we see God and wouldn't we be happy then? So happiness runs off holiness, not the other way around. And Timothy demonstrates this long-term commitment to conducting himself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, in good circumstances and in difficult circumstances. He's been watching Paul. Paul writes to him two very intimate letters and speaks in those letters and encourages Timothy to preach the word and teach the word and do the work of the ministry and be an evangelist and all that sort of stuff. And he says, and you've watched me through the ups and downs of You've seen my life as well. And Timothy has. And he's proved himself to be worthy of the gospel. As a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. The word he used for served, of course, is the word which we get slave from. If you were to use the phrase, slaving at a hot stove, then you're using it in the right way, but it comes over with a negative connotation, doesn't it? Slaving at a hot stove, you wish you'd be anywhere but at this hot stove, right? But Paul uses it here as an honorable term. He has served with me, slaved with me for Jesus. We are nothing but the slaves of the Lord. But actually it depends on who you are slaving for. That's the key, isn't it? who wouldn't want to be a slave of Jesus Christ, whom to serve is perfect freedom and joy and delight. So I hope, therefore, he says, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. So this letter's going to come to them. When Paul works out what's going to happen to him, he's still not quite sure. Is it going to end badly on earth for him? Is it going to end up in glory? Or is it is his life going to continue? He doesn't know and he's not going to send Timothy until he knows. So Timothy might go as his ambassador, taking his word from him. He might go as his representative because Paul is no longer with them. Either way, Timothy can be entrusted to represent, to stand for, to speak on behalf of Paul. And if Paul is still alive, of course he wants Timothy to come back and tell him what's happening in Philippi. So Timothy would take the letter and explain the letter and explain what Paul is on about to them. So they'll have this letter, they'll read it together, and Timothy will teach them from this letter. They will say, what does he mean when he says this? And what does that mean? And all the other questions that will come out. And Timothy would have the joy and responsibility of teaching them from Paul's letter. And they will hold on to that letter preciously. It will mean everything to them. Eventually, it will be safeguarded, and the early fathers would collect that letter among others and say, This is worthy of putting in the New Testament. We recognize something special about this letter. So, Timothy has that responsibility. He will be, in our language, a full time Christian worker. I hate this terminology because it's crass, but it you makes the point. He's a preacher, a pastor, an evangelist, a minister, okay? A full time Christian guy in that sense, right? That's who he is, and Paul speaks very highly of him. Maturity, my friends, comes over years. Keep going, ups and downs, stick with it. We live, one person described churches in East Sussex years ago to me as occupied by butterflies who move from one church to another, to another, to another. The moment they don't like something, they move to another church. It's not like that here, is it? We stick with it through thick and thin, don't we? You stay with it because life goes up and life goes down and you stick with it, don't you? Because that's how you become mature. Not by moving, 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 moving. Of course, when God tells you to move, you move. But until that happens, you stick with it, don't you? You stay with it because that develops maturity. Epaphroditus, on the other hand, is a completely different kind of guy. He's not a full-time Christian worker. He doesn't plant any churches. As far as we know, he doesn't bring anyone to the Lord. Not that it's recorded here. He doesn't go on any missions. He doesn't join Paul on any missionary journeys. He doesn't have the responsibility of being a preacher or a pastor. He doesn't even write anything. His task, we're told, is to come and look after the needs of Paul. Where's Paul? Well, probably on house arrest. Which means he can't go out and go to the local Aldi and buy his things. And if you're under house arrest, the government are not going to look after you. They don't provide anything. They put you in prison. They don't even feed you. That is dependent on your friends and family. So when the church of Philippi hear this, they anticipate Jesus' comment, because they haven't read about it yet, because the gospel hasn't been written, when he says, I was in prison and you visited me. But they don't know he said that, because no one's told them yet, but they're anticipating it. Because they say to Epaphrodisers, we can't all come, we'd like to, but you go in our stead and you, what does it say? Take care of Paul's needs. This man comes not to preach the gospel, not to heal the sick, not to drive out demons, but to take care of one man's needs. He's a layman, isn't he? I hate that term, but you know what I mean. One's a full-time Christian worker and one's a layman. That's a contrast I want to make. Forget the times, but that's a contrast, okay? And Paul speaks about them equally strongly and equally warmly. Because this guy, Epaphroditus, Paul calls my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. He heaps up these lovely titles because this man also has shared in the gospel by doing these things. A long time ago, when we were at a church in Heathfield, which had a great connection, still does, with Spring Harvest, I remember one of the people involved in Spring Harvest said to me, he said, Charles, for every one person who stands on a platform to present the word of God at Spring Harvest, I forget exactly the number of figures, he said, I need 15 or 16 other people to make it happen. For one person to stand behind a pulpit, lectern, whatever, and stand to present the gospel, I need 15 or 16 other people. Stewards, tech guys, people with who are going to do the food and stuff, people to put up tents again when the wind's blown them down. All the huge number of people that make it happen. Without those people, he said, we could never put on spring harvest. And those, ch- those people would never have a chance to speak to other people. What we have here is one guy called Timothy who's the and kind the of guy who stands behind a platform and speaks. And you have an Epaphroditus who is a servant who makes it happen. What's his responsibility? To go and get the food for Paul. The chances are to bring it back and cook it for him. To wash for him. Care for him. Look after the needs of the house. Because Paul has other things on his plate. And this releases Paul to do what Paul is gifted to do. And Paul recognises this and calls him a brother. A brother in Christ. You and I, says Paul, to Epaphroditus, are brothers together. Isn't that lovely? We would call Paul in our day a super saint. We would traipse him round all the big celebrations, wouldn't we? Paul wouldn't do that. He calls himself a brother to Epaphroditus who makes it possible. A fellow worker. I'm doing one kind of work, says Paul, and he's doing another, and together they express the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you sometimes get frustrated that what you do doesn't get recognized, but people like me, who stand in front of others, get the thanks and the praise? Because you can do, can't you? Paul is lifting this guy into the public gaze of the Philippians and so say, your guy is just a treasure. I love him. He is such a help to me. With him coming, all sorts of things are possible. He's not just a softie. He's a fellow soldier. He knows we're in spiritual warfare, that all this was about spiritual warfare. This is a guy who nearly died, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. This journey of 800 miles probably called him to risk his life. Maybe there were plenty of times where he thought, I could, I could turn back. I could turn back. I've had enough of this lot. But he didn't. He went on and kept on going. He doesn't want to go back. He wants to stay there because he's been sent there to do this sort of work for Paul. But Paul says, no, much as I'd love to have your company all this time, you must go back. I'd rather settle their minds at home. So Paul exhorts both these kind of guys. Interesting, isn't it? They model what it is to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Timothy is one who sees it through, uphill and down down, persevering, proving that he is worthy of the gospel. And Epaphroditus risks his life and is prepared to do anything, go anywhere, do anything that God calls him to do on behalf of others. He is utterly reliable, has this massive uh, This monetary gift that he could obviously have walked off into Europe with, couldn't he, and started anew in Britain or somewhere, couldn't he? But he didn't. He brought it to Paul because he's utterly reliable. Absolutely trustworthy. And the whole little story of Paul explaining all this helps us to do what Paul would later say, love one another, take care of one another. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. So my friends, whether you're someone who has a more public role or a less public role, grab it and do it with all your heart to the glory of God because the one can't happen without the other, can it? It's really important to see that. These days we love to be people, as it were, the metaphoric brass tack, plaque on their door because we love to have titles for things but most of the things that are done don't have titles. Chief visitor. To the sick and, and um, I nearly said, imprisoned. No, those who can't get out of their home. I suppose it must feel like being prison imprisoned, wasn't it, at times? But you don't have that sort of plaque, do you? But how much of that is done? Caring for one another, looking after one another. Things that make things happen. Okay, Pushing on, determined, reliable. Every church needs this core of people who are utterly reliable, trustworthy. They'll be there through thick and thin. Because people come and people go. But you need this core of people. The bigger the better. The people say, this is where God's called me to be. This is what, what God's called me to do. And I'm going to stick with it until God calls me away. Friendship. Let me finish with a little story about friendship from the First World War. One night, as a struggle settled into trench warfare... A lieutenant commanded his men to sneak across a field and attack the enemy. Obeying the officer's command, the men inched their way out of their safety and began to crawl toward the enemy. Suddenly gunfire rang out. Bullets flew in every direction. The frightened men scurried back to their own trenches as quickly as they could and hunkered down. When the gunfire ceased, it was eerily almost still. Except for the moaning and groaning of one of the men, who had been left behind on the field, wounded. The man kept crying for his friend George, begging him to come and save him. George, in turn, pleaded with the young lieutenant to be allowed to go, but the young lieutenant said no, over and over again, no, trying to explain that he didn't want to lose another man in what would be an obviously foolhardy rescue attempt. I've lost him. I don't want to lose you too, said the lieutenant. But the young recruit kept pleading and finally in exasperation the lieutenant said, "Okay, if you want to get yourself killed, go ahead. I'm tired of listening. Go out and get yourself killed if that's what you want to do. The young soldier sneaked over the edge of the trench and inched his way along the ground, crawled to his friend, grabbed him and slowly pulled him back to safety. He got his wounded friend back to the trench and after pushing him over the edge of the trench, George fell in on top of him but it was too late. He was dead. The lieutenant said, George, I told you, there was no point to your bravery. Why did you risk your life? You put the entire unit in jeopardy. And for what? There was no point to what you did. You were a fool. George answered, I was no fool. When I got to him, he was still alive. And his last words he said were, George, I knew you'd come. Don't underestimate this powerful friendship that being brothers and sisters together gives us. Don't underestimate the impact of ordinary caring ministry to one another can have for the gospel. Don't underestimate your place in the body of Christ. Would they miss me if I wasn't here? Yes, we would. Absolutely. Completely. Even though you think, well, maybe they wouldn't. Every one of us is very important to the body of Christ. Every one of us. We depend on each other, don't we? We really do. And we thank God for these examples of how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jesus would say, I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you visited me. I was hungry, and you fed me. And they would say, when, Lord? And he would say, when you did this to the least of my brothers. You did it for me. Father, we count it a privilege to be your servants as well as your children. We're glad to be involved in the work of ministry through your Spirit. We thank you for every opportunity we have to encourage and support and stand with each other in prayerful and practical ways. So as we look forward to another normal week for most of us, doing normal things in a normal way, which probably won't grab any headlines, we want to do all those things to the glory of God in a way that reflects Glory to you. We want to do the small things as well as the great things to the glory of God. We want to put our hearts and souls into them, Father. Not just, not just, Lord, to give you a whole special series of events, but to express our love for you in the way we treat each other and love your world. So fill us, Father, with your Spirit so that we may serve you with gladness and joy wherever you send us and whatever you give us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: ...things before we come to our final hymn. Uh, The first one is, Would Harry, would you like to give thanks for the collection and and anything else that's on your heart, please?
2: I think actually Charles would be quite pleased I didn't share this before. (laughs) He said, I was watching a video this week and... um, it was about what God's doing in the world. And there were these two Indian guys. One who um, who uh, was um, blind, but his legs worked fine. And the other guy who was lame. And they both wanted to preach the gospel. And they both went around the villages. So the guy who was blind pedaled the bike. And the guy who could see but was lame, he steered. And I thought, what a wonderful picture of, of, of the church and how we should be. And so often we look... We, we, some of us just want to be perfect before we can be used by God. But actually, what God wants us to do is not compete with one another, but to support one another, which is exactly what Charles was saying. Uh, and I was just blessed by that. And really, God pointed to me how much I've been relying on my healing rather than on, on, on him. And that I've almost made an idol of being healed. And I've got, got worse, which is, which is fine. Because the thing is, God will still use me. It doesn't matter how we are. And for each one of us, we need to see that we are important. That's really just saying, again, what Charles has said. Okay.
1: But if you've ever been to Western Super Mare, as Charles said, I hope you were listening at that point, it's sometimes called Western Super Mud because when the tide goes out, and this is true, you cannot see the sea. Somebody once described Western Super Mare as in these words, that one day the tide went out and didn't come back. So that's where you met with the Lord. So that's an interesting place. Jenny, would you like to join with me, please? Next Sunday, uh, there will be a time in the communion service and so on that there'll be a time of, uh, of, of the oversight, really reporting on, on the really good visit we had from, uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Paul. Um, but it was clear from the advice from Dr. Paul, and also we liaised with Charles as our mentors, that it was the right thing to do um, to set a date that would be the point at which Jenny and I would leave the ministry here. And we prayed about this, and I met with the oversight in the week, and we had, I think, a very powerful meeting, in my opinion. It worked, there was such a unity of spirit. And the decision that we came to mutually was that our last service here will be on December the 27th. In other words, we will be with you up to Christmas, the busy period. But after Christmas, we will finish. Um, So when you come to the Breakfast Club in January, Jenny and I will not be there. But the following week, the following week afterwards, which I think is January the 10th, we will have the something that Dr. Paul called a valediction service. I called it a Martin Baker ejection service, but he seemed to think there's valediction. So we were called by God to be with you, and you prayed and commissioned us at that service, which uh, Peter McIntosh kindly took. Therefore, we think it's right that as we're now called away, as you seek new younger people to come in and take on the work that we've done to this point, that we would wish to be relieved of the responsibility of being pastor and pastorette, or whatever the phrase is. Um, As you know, it's always been a a two-way thing right from the beginning. Um, That it's right we have that service to to relieve us. The other thing that I've agreed with the the oversight is in that period, which may not be short, John will say more about it on the advice, as you seek other people, I will be available to do everything that you want me to do in the ways of baptisms, funerals, or as I jokingly said, as well bar mitzvahs. Whatever you want me to do, I will be available for you to help you for those sort of things. Particularly the funeral area, I know is, is an area of difficulty, um, but anything else that I, you call upon, we will be available, um, providing we are. But I just wanted you to know. And um, do you want to say something to the church about uh, it? Yes. My wife can't speak, um, so I want you to know that we have prayed about it. We are at peace. We feel it is the right thing to do. Um, if you'll say, what are we going to do? I think Jenny has probably said to more than one of you, we have a blank sheet of paper. We have a white ceiling. We do not know. We feel the Lord is saying a, a period of rest for a thing, but that's all we can tell you in all truth, yes? So is there anything else you want to say about I'm not used to this. (laughs) Yeah, we've both been attacked in the throat. We didn't have it, so just pray. Can you pray for us? Because it's not just a matter of leaving the ministry here. We need to find a church home, um, and that is not easy. There are many churches which do not preach the gospel, which we would not be comfortable with. And then the other thing I would ask you to pray about, and we've had two examples which are difficult is because you come out of leadership you go into a church and then the leadership there or particularly the vicar or pastor or something feels threatened and there are difficulties and that's caused problems and in two cases I know people have had to leave that church we don't want to get into that situation we want to find the place God wants us to be so those are the two areas can I just pray now and finish Father, just thank you that you called us here, Lord. We just pray that your hand is going to be on that man or woman or the couple who need to follow on the work that you've started here. We praise you for all that you've done. And we just thank you for your peace in this situation. Uh, Lord, we just ask your protection over the church during this period, Lord, That uh, that you will protect them and bless them and do mighty things for them and surprise them. And I pray back that prophetic word that somebody will be available within 18 months. I pray that back in faith and ask, Lord, that you will release those people, whoever it is, at that time, in that 18-month period, which looks like it's about June next year, Lord, rather than any longer period, which seems to be the case with small churches. Thank you, Lord, for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen could ask the music group to come back and I'd ask you to stand